What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. Thank you so much for joining us. And giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do on Herd Tell, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that really matter, discuss topics that are important so that we can better discern the times we live in. And this is one of the most important topics that we cover. It's a special episode today. We've been wanting to do this again. We haven't done it in a while. We've got Dr. Katie Gordon on, and that's going to be the whole of the entire program. We're going to talk mental health. Now, why are we going to do that on a culture and politics program. Well, simple for a couple of reasons. One, it's my program. We can do what we want. And I want to do important stuff. It's not just a slogan. We want to do what matters. And if you don't think your mental health affects your politics, you don't think it affects how you view culture, if you don't think it affects how you interact with other people, how you function as a citizen and as a community member, it affects everything. Angry people in politics are obvious. You don't think maybe they could use a little work on their anger or people that are really hurt or people that have trauma. That affects your politics. It affects how you consume culture, the status of celebrities and how we follow them, how we idealize uh, politicians and other people. That all goes to your mental health. But more importantly, we talk a lot on this program about how we consume the news, how we consume those headlines. We are 100% responsible for the intake that we put into our brains through our social media, the news media, and whatever other forms of media you take. Now, since you listen to this program, obviously, you're a very discerning, intelligent, and well-thought-of member of the media consumption community because we only have the very best people you see. And I'm joking a little bit about that. But we talk about it. Curate your social media and your news media feeds to what you not only want to find out about, but also what you need to know about. So we're going to talk about social media, we're going to talk about the news media, we're going to talk pop culture, we're going to talk very serious topics with Dr. Katie Gordon, we're going to talk about things like suicide, so a little bit of a warning here if that's something you struggle with or have trouble talking about mental health or suicide and things like that, we are going to get into those topics today. We're also going to have a little fun with it, we're going to talk about some pop culture stuff, everything from uh, Cosmo's list of the biggest things of the year to the big pressing question is Taylor Swift good for our mental health and all that is important because we can have fun with the mental health conversation we can put it in practical terms like you know Harry and Megan and that kind of nonsense and how that affects you but that also lets us have a gateway into talking about the really serious stuff like depression like anxiety like suicide like taking care of ourselves and this is something that we just all got to be open and honest about it. I see a mental health care provider through the VA I have for years now. I wish I'd done it a lot earlier. I first started seeing them around 2015 or so. And in conjunction with my own physical health problems, I started actually taking my mental health things seriously. And it made a huge difference in my life. And it can in yours, too. Now, not everybody's got to go sit and talk to a therapist. That's not what we're talking about. Although there's more options for help out there than there's ever been. But are you just mindful that, hey, the politics you point off, those pop culture hot takes that you put on your social media, your mindset is the filter that everything you know and everything you consume comes back out of you, whether on social media or out of your sayings and actions to your friends and family in real life. Your mental health is controlling how that comes out. So we're going to spend a little time talking about it today. A fun conversation that also gets serious. We talk about pop culture, we talk about politics, we talk about how you can actually save people's lives. More importantly, we're going to talk about how you make your own life a little bit better. And if you make your life a little better, that helps make everybody around you a little bit better. Changing the world, starting with you, your family, then your community, then your city and country and state, and eventually the whole world. we got to find a mirror on this stuff, folks. 
So very excited, very proud, something we've been wanting to do for a while. We're going to do it consistently going forward. Dr. Katie Gordon's back on the program talking mental health right after this as we continue on Her Talk. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, this is one of the more important episodes we do. We do it periodically, and when we do it, we do it with Dr. Katie Gordon, who is back. So we can talk a little mental health type stuff, practical stuff, not just the buzzwords how to do it. She's a clinical psychologist. She also has the authorship of the Suicide Thoughts Workbook, which we've covered before on the program. We'll link to all that back stuff, but it's been too long, my friend. Welcome back. Thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. It's always nice to talk with you, and I appreciate you prioritizing mental health. I, we have to because what's happening is, let's just take recently, I don't remember any event in the news. And again, we're not going to cover the news and the politics and stuff. We're going to cover today how we react to it, okay? Because we don't do that enough. I have not seen an event in the, what, six years now that I've been in public media and doing writing and media and things like this. I've seen no event where people told me more both publicly and privately and on social media. I don't know how much social media news I can intake as things like the Israeli Hamas thing that's going on, the Palestinian stuff and the protests that come off that. We just had another uh, mass murder. I've decided I'm not going to call them mass shootings anymore because I think it's bad nomenclature. We had a mass murder um, up in Maine. All of that's happening Folks are just worn out. They're tired. I'm sure you're seeing it in your practice, but what do we do when we have just one thing after another after another in the news flow? Because that affects your mental health, and we don't talk about that. We just keep wanting to go more and more and more with the news feeds. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought that topic up. I think that a lot of very well-meaning people, and, and I've been caught in this as well, too, feel like we have to be aware of what's going on in the world so that we can do our part. And I think that's extremely true. And we have to take care of ourselves or we're not going to be able to contribute or connect or anything like that. So it is okay to take breaks from your newsfeed. It doesn't mean that you're not aware. You can choose, okay, I'm going to spend this amount per day, for example, checking these sites I trust and and get informed. But that can occur alongside other things, like I'm going to take some time to take a walk, or I'm going to take some time to spend time with loved ones, or or I'm not going to do that right before bed because I need sleep. And all of those things, I think, are really important, taking care of yourself and your mental health, along with keeping up with your values of being aware of what's going on in the world. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon, here's the thing, and we've talked about you before, but for the audience that hasn't seen you when you've been on the program before, what we need to do with this stuff is how do you discern when you're getting too much? Now, this is just one of those, look, as a somebody that does therapy work with people, everybody's different. Everybody's got their own thing. But just generally speaking, what's the moderation? Because we got the old saying, everything in moderation is usually an okay thing. News feeds different. TV news is different. Your social media is different because your media feed is now curated. This is something that's kind of new in human history. So even though it's a very old problem, moderating our intake, both visually and auditory wise and video, the fact that your cell phone or your laptop, or your iPad or whatever, it's already pre-programmed by you to feed you certain things. This is kind of a new thing for psychology and therapists to deal with, right? Because I know when you're talking about, you know, DBT therapies, PTSD therapies, things that I've worked on with me, they talk about, well, the things you set yourself up for, almost every adult in America now, through the power of their cell phone, has set themselves up for just this kind of moment. We don't talk about that enough, do we? No, we don't. And I, I think that you're absolutely right that this is seen in therapy and now openly discussed. For example, if people are struggling with an eating disorder, you can get very, you can get exposed to a lot 
of harmful information within your curated feed. So I think that it's really important to, like you said, have some signs for yourself knowing that you need to cut back. So some of those are if you're withdrawing from loved ones in person events and activities that you value because you're on your phone. I think that's really a sign because for our well-being, we need to be connected to other people. If you're having trouble sleeping and that gets worse or it's started up because of the details of news events that you're looking into, that that can be another sign. If you're feeling hopeless, that can be another sign. Again, I'm not saying that these feelings aren't understandable. They're 100% understandable. And it's also important to know that it is okay for you. And in fact, it's necessary for you to take those signs and take a step back and notice, hey, this isn't helping me on a day-to-day basis. And, and I need to just, just moderate. What that exact amount is, you're right, it differs for different people. And so you can kind of experiment with it. You know, if I stop looking at my phone after 8 p.m., do I sleep better? Well, that's a good sign to know that maybe that's a good rule for me. If it if that's not enough, maybe I'll try five. So a lot of times in therapy, it's a bit of trial and error to figure out what it is for each person, but each person can do that for themselves. And how much of it, and you and me both do this in different ways, something like your social media feed, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, How much does variety play a part of having a healthy social media feed and a healthy news media intake? Like I put the, I do the Twitter supper club. I do a lot of food on mine. I do a lot of travel stuff, but especially the food, that's something a lot of the, our kind of little group is like, I'm so sick of doing politics. I'm just going to put food on there. So I know when I look at my phone, I got one good thing on there, right? You put a lot of music on your Twitter feed, (laughs) a lot of live music, live bands, singer songwriter kind of stuff, pop performances. You do that. You also do the pop culture stuff like TV shows, but that's what you do. I do food. You do music. That's a very healthy thing, not just in your life. Look, your social media is a microcosm of however you're doing your life. You're either amplifying something or you're hiding stuff or whatever. That's a healthy thing to do with your social media, though, is just have, you know, psychology. You talk about the third place, not work, not home. Sometimes you need a third or a fourth place just in your social media feeds and your news feeds. Isn't that a healthy way to go about this? It is, absolutely. I think that one thing I've struggled with, I think other people have too, is that if you're posting something about the meal that you're eating or the music that you're listening to or the TV that you're watching, sometimes there's a worry that other people will perceive you as not caring enough about bigger events in the world or it seems trivial. And I get that. I've struggled with that myself. Yet, for us to go through in a day-to-day basis and get by it doesn't help anyone for us to not find pleasures and small things each day and share those with each other, right? Those are important things. So I love that you do Twitter Supper Club. I think that's really important. And you've continued to do that through through the pandemic and a number of other very stressful events. And that's something people can count on every day, share what they're eating, see what other people are eating. And I think that's such a lovely way to connect. Yeah, and uh, Dr. Katie Gordon joining us. I've done it too where like um, I did a trip to Chicago last year and I went social media dark. One is I didn't want people to know I was there other than there was a couple people, friends I met up with, whatever. But it was a family trip. I just didn't want people to know where I was. But I still put the food group on there just anonymously, right? Because that was for me to put that out. One thing I've noticed too, and I noticed this during the pandemic with my school-aged children, People will say, well, the Internet isn't real life and Twitter isn't real life and Facebook isn't real life. That's partially true. But I think we're underplaying it, too, because I've noticed with my children during the pandemic, I would check on my teens and I'd be like, do you miss your friends? They're like, no, I talk to them all day long. I don't really miss my friends. It's just this is annoying and I hate the school online, blah, blah, blah. But they were adamant. They're like, no, I don't miss my friends. Now, all the adults, we were all talking about that. Oh, they're missing their friends. They're not getting to play with their friends. 
they didn't miss them one beat. And I could hear them in there talking because they're all on Discord. They're all on TikTok. They're all, they talk to each other more during the pandemic than they did at the school day, right? Do we need to adjust how we talk about social media? Because this rising generation, that's their natural ecosystem. They didn't learn it like you and I did, the old people, right? And <laughs> you have children too. They don't see a difference between online communication and their interpersonal relationships. I know there's a point there where it gets unhealthy and you still need the human interaction. Do we need to change our mindset about this? Because I found like doing, you just mentioned the food group. I, I don't put it on there so people praise my food. I put it on there because somebody goes, oh, let me have the recipe for that. Or I'll ask somebody else for it. It's a connecting thing. Yes. Do we need to change how we're discussing it and kind of take a more positive approach? Because I'm guilty of it too. But now I'm like, you know what? The next generation, this is all the same thing to them. Maybe we should look at it that way. Yes, I like the open-mindedness and flexibility because the truth is that it would be easier if most light things in our lives were this is all good or this is all bad. But there are a few things that are like that. A lot of the things, it's how we're using the social media. How much are we using it? Is it replacing other behaviors that are important to do? Or is it enhancing them? And that's one of the things I see with social connections. There are things for kids and youth that can be enhanced that are really negative and harmful, like bullying and um, negative commentary and teasing. And there are some positive things that can be really enhanced. They see connections with maybe someone they know from school but don't know really well, and then they say, oh, we do, we like the same music, or we like the same movie, or we have the same values, and then that enhances that. Or with people they're already friends with, and can say, I like, you know, they like knowing what the other person is up to, and then they can talk on FaceTime or whatever it is and connect that way. So I do very much think it's more complicated than just something's good or something's bad. I certainly think there are negative consequences for some people in some ways of viewing social media, but we have to acknowledge there are positive consequences too. And that's why a lot of people keep using it. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon joining us. I hate to use the term pop psychology because I know you hate that term. <laughs> but for the lack of pop psychology, as far as us, the uninitiated that don't study psychology or just enough study of it in Psych 101 to be dangerous, right? <laughs> when people think about psychology and how people think and how people behave and how people interact with each other, do we have some generational and technological gaps in our understanding? And even the professionals probably are struggling with this a little bit too. We just have to change how we deal with things, how we deal with social, like video games. Used to, when I was growing up, video games was this insular thing where it was you in front of the TV. That's not what video games are today. Now video games are a very online communal activity. It's one of the biggest entertainment industries in the world. It's bigger than Hollywood, money-wise. That's a change that I don't know that everybody's adapted to. That's just one example is the psychology and the way we're dealing with human interactions and how the human mind works and how that comes out in behaviors, is it keeping up with the technology? Because it feels like it's lagging, which all science does. Science always lags culture a little bit. Feels like there's a little bit of a gap, and especially after the pandemic and especially now with the way the news works, professionally, are the professionals noticing that? Is your peers noticing that? Is that something that's being addressed? Because it feels that way to us, the folks, a little bit. It's a great question. I think you're right. The science often takes time and it's also hard to connect certain things because a lot of the things about human behavior, they're complicated and we can't experimentally assign certain things, at least for long periods of time. Um, so a lot of the things we're, we're trying to make our best guesses, I fully embrace science to guiding our decisions. And yet there are almost no psychological studies, maybe none, where it shows that the same thing applies for every single person. So there has been a movement in psychological science for more individualized approaches. So that's on the science side. How can we know what the best approach is for this individual? And at the same time, I see in practice, the therapists who work with adolescents and kids anecdotally seem very up on the technology because my guess is that their patients would quickly not connect with them if it was this overly harsh view of social media or if they didn't understand what the person was talking about. That's my guess. Uh, Dr. Katie Gordon joining us. 
You just mentioned with science. I think one of the lessons I took from the pandemic, I've talked to our friend, Dr. Michael Siegel about it, who's a scientist. And he agreed. like, one thing we learned is that academic science does not communicate with the common people very well. That's where a lot of those problems started. They just didn't know how to communicate. They, they speak a different language. One of the problems is science can't explain everything because humans are complicated. Now, you got the problem when you're a psychologist, you're meeting where the science stops and anatomy and the human nature stops. And then you got the soul and the inner being that we can't really explain very well. And you're trying to make that all fit into a science. That's a very messy, non-exact thing to deal with. How do you express that to the common person who's just going, look, I'm sad. Am I depressed though? I'm anxious. Do I need to get help for this? I'm having a little bit of a problem with this particular addiction, but I don't know it. Those borderline people that look at the science and honestly question it. I don't mean the cranks. I mean the people that are honestly skeptical or just come out of it at ignorance or they're just honestly like, I don't know if this is for me or if this is really helping me. How do you balance those things and explain it? Like, yes, there's science. No, it doesn't explain everything, but we can try to help you with certain things. And a lot of it has to do with what you do with what we tell you. That's a big bite for a lot of people that don't get help. And I think that's one of the big barriers to people not getting help is they just don't know how to get their arms around that problem. How do you explain it to folks that are seeking help but maybe don't know where to go? That's such an incredibly wonderful and and important question. And I'm glad you asked it. I think I've spent most of my career trying to figure out what is that balance, both as a therapist, but also as someone who's done research and is trying to communicate concepts and ideas to the public in a responsible yet clear way. And so I think that's a great question. I think that what seems to help, especially in a, in a therapy setting, is to first spend the time getting to know the person, understanding them, having compassion for them, and getting their perspective, and assessing before recommending anything. Because once, if a person kind of trusts that you know them, then that's where I think you can pull in. This is what we know from the science. It doesn't work for everybody, but this is what I would recommend since it works for most people. And that, that what do you think of that? So it's a very collaborative process. And I think that there has to be a humility involved on the side of the practitioner, the therapist, or the scientist to say, Let's look at this together. This is what we know from the science. Let's try it, but let's reevaluate and see if it's working for you. And if it's not, we're going to keep working until we find that. And so I think that's really key. But I think all of that is much more possible once someone understands that you care about them and their specific situation, all the complexities in their lives. Yeah, Dr. Katie Gordon, clinical psychiatrist, talking to us. Here's where we get into some of the ugly on this, but we have to because it's such an important topic and it's kind of become your specialty the last few years, suicide prevention and how suicide deals with things. I just had it happen a couple of weeks ago where I live. Got, they found a guy right in the woods, right outside of VA facility where he was being treated, killed oh. himself. I've had it happen to me years ago where I sat in a peer group with a guy three chairs over. He went got his full prescription, came to his peer group, picked up his prescription, went home, took all the pills with liquor and killed himself. Mm. He's had two chairs over, nothing I could do about it. You didn't mm. even know. This stuff is so hard. Um, the veteran community obviously is dealing with this, but a lot of people, other the stats are all over the place on suicide, especially since COVID, which really kind of skewed them for a lot of reasons. Go beyond the stats for me, though. What you've gotten feedback on your book that's been out for what a little over a year now. You've really studied this. Give people one or two practical things, not just, oh, I think this person's in trouble or this person might hurt themselves or somebody else. 
give them those one or two things because now you're getting the feedback from folks. You've got a lot of anecdotal evidence to go with all that clinical knowledge. Just give us one or two things to deal with on a practical level when we're really, really concerned about somebody. I think, first of all, I'm very sorry about those losses and, and every loss is really a tragedy and, and you're right, it's complex and, and also we may not always know what's going on. So first I wanna mention our resource 988, which is um, in the United States, 24 seven confidential access to trained um, phone operators who you can ask for advice. It, it, it's for yourself, but you can also call and ask for advice if you're not sure how to help someone. So that's, and that's relatively new too. like people is. don't realize that just started basically any emergency room in America. Now you can walk in for mental health reasons and they will, you can tell them the right kind of things and they'll at least figure it out or try to find somebody for you. I'm, I know the care is lacking, but it's at least a first step. You can take people to the ER. You can call the police. There's a lot of things you can do. But I think one thing we've talked to you about it before is get it. If, if you have that doubt, get it out of your own hands and get it into somebody professional's hands and let them make the call. Is that a fair way to put it? I think so. I think specifically with regard to the hospital or the police, I think that clearly if someone is in immediate danger, you definitely want to think about that and, and or calling 911. I think that when you're not sure where they're at and you can talk to them directly, it can sometimes, it, it can sometimes be well, it can oftentimes be helpful to first start by talking with them about maybe connecting with a therapist or a crisis counselor or something like that before going to um, to those other options. And so one of the biggest things you ask that that's practical is to to listen and open conversation and and ask, you know, I've noticed these things. State what those things are. I've noticed you're not hanging out as much. I noticed that you seem like you're unhappy or I noticed that you're not yourself. So stating what you've observed and then saying, I just want you to know I, I really care about you. And and can you tell me a little bit about how you've been doing lately or what's been going on? And so similar to what I just said about therapists taking that approach, I think that's important too, that your first step is trying to understand, show that you're non-judgmental, that you're emotionally safe person to talk to. And then once that has happened, and first of all, um, not everyone is gonna be able to respond to that depending on what type of pain or state that they're in. They, in, they may have a hard time sharing. But if you at least open that up for them, that shows that you care and that they're not alone. If they do start talking, then I encourage direct conversation. Are you making a plan for killing yourself? If so, what is that plan? And then that is the way that you can also help to talk to them about how to be safe. So that 988 that I mentioned, they also have a website that has things like safety plans and other resources. So the person can call or they can, you, they can reach out another way. You can call and be willing to help them. But there are, some people are not gonna do that. They rather more privately sift through resources. That was kind of the idea of the workbook I created. And so on that website, they can also find ways to create safety. And we know that with suicide, having physical safety, removing means to suicide at a time of high risk can be life-saving and crucial. So there are those steps there kind of, I threw a lot out in that, but, um, but the basic idea is open the conversation and then start looking at ways to support them. Yeah, and we're going to have this suicide workbook in the links on the show notes, hertel.substack.com. We're also going to have uh, Dr. Katie's website and all her links to the book and other things in all the show notes. So make sure you look through all those. Go beyond the numbers, though, because we, we finally got last year's suicide numbers out. There was some coverage in the New York Times and other things. The biggest thing with these numbers, though, is you can't just take a top line number and get the story. Right. They were a little bit... Overall, the number of suicides were up, but they weren't up across the board. The elderly, 65 and over, those were up. Teenagers in certain groups like teenage girls, those were up. The middle, though, that 30 to 40 cohorts, it's always been a problem, working professionals and other things, that was down. There's contracting stories in there, but when you piece out that information, what jumps out to you? Obviously, we've talked before about the adolescent problem because there just ain't enough adolescent mental health care to deal with. 
The elderly, of course, have into life issues they're dealing with. That's a whole separate issue. What jumped out at you beyond just the numbers? Everybody's eyes roll if you start talking about 50,000 suicides and whatever the numbers are. What did you key on that you really went, huh, that's something we need to think about? Well, it's it's another good question. And, and one of the things that I think is is challenging about suicide research and understanding data is that I think there would ha- I'd have to make a lot of speculation to understand why certain numbers went this way or went this way. I think the overall picture of suicide rates going up, that's telling. What we're doing right now is inadequate um, for people that really need help and, and we really need to intervene. And in my view, and a lot of other people in the field and other people who are not in the field, but just people who, who struggle themselves or know people who struggle, we understand that a lot of stressors in life, having access to care, um, worrying about financial stability, having good access to medical care, that all of those things are upstream factors that may help to prevent suicide downstream. So a lot of suicide prevention cannot only focus once someone is to the point of a suicidal crisis, if we go back and look at what are some common needs that people have that are inadequately being met um, and how can we address those upstream again? How can we help people with stress? Now, in the world, we were faced with this pandemic that disrupted so many things that it's hard to even think about how to manage that. I mean, we've talked about how one positive to come out of it is that telehealth is more present and that has opened up care for a lot of people. However, it's still not enough, right? We have some we have some solid strategies for suicide prevention, and yet we're still seeing those numbers. And the world can be a hard place, and it's important that we do more to bring those down. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. All right, this is important, heavy stuff, but let's do some fun stuff because you cover pop culture. I'm going to do something fun here. We're going to have some fun. So I've got a list. I don't have the paper to do the sound effect because it's on the computer. 
I have a list. I'm going to go down the list of Cosmo's pop culture moments of 2023, and you're going to tell me whether they're good for our mental health or not. Okay. This is going to be fun, okay? Okay. Because, And we're going to be a little goofy here, but there's some lessons in here on how we consume our media and what we consume do. Um, this one I find interesting. I actually wrote a whole column on this about the political ones, but Nepo babies, if you remember the Nepo baby discussion, it was people whose parents were famous or rich or influential, and now they're famous and rich and influential. This was a debate because that brings in things like class and jealousy and rich and fairness and all that. Is the Nepo baby discussion, is that good for your mental health or not? I think that it can be helpful in that I think people who are self-critical because they haven't gotten ahead and they're like, why are these people getting ahead? They can from this discussion of Nepo babies, understand that there are certain factors that have nothing to do with how hard you work or if you're a good person or whatever it is, but luck and who you know, right? And so I think that can actually be helpful to reduce self-criticism. All right, here's one. Again, I'm using Cosmos list because I never read that stuff and never pay attention to this unless the kids get into it. This is a topic that I basically have muted and I don't care about one little bit and I ignore it completely, but it's a big deal out there. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I find this whole thing completely unhealthy on a multitude of levels, but you're the expert. I think everything involving these folks is just not healthy for anybody, including them, frankly. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, is that healthy for our discourse and mental health? You know, I have to give like the typical psychologist, therapist and say, both can be true, right? So I think there are some positive aspects in that I think there's been some openness talking about mental health that has come up um, and between both of them, right? I mean, talking about their own mental health experience, their support for mental health, that helps. I think that the kind of palace intrigue aspect of it can be helpful to a point in that it's distracting, but it can also be unhelpful if people are too wrapped up in it to do other things or think about other things that may be more pertinent to their own lives. Yeah. Okay. Here's another fun one. And I'm skipping around a couple of these okay. UFOs, a lot of UFO. I actually just did a UFO episode on the program. I didn't really want to, but we were talking about how government funding goes into these things, this sort of thing, but UFOs, the government, is it holding secrets? It like everybody loves good conspiracy. You could write a whole psychological book on conspiracy theories by themselves, but the UFO discourse, it can be a fun distraction, but is it good for our mental health? This is another complicated one. I think that if you're prone to um, lack trust in the government, which you know there are valid reasons for that, for sure, but let's say that that gets to an extreme, then that could have amplified that extreme. Um, and at the same time, I, I do think that I kind of think about, do you remember that movie Contact based on the Carl Sagan book from a long time ago? I'm generally in favor for the idea of viewing ourselves as a small part of a much larger universe. And so I don't know that it was interpreted that way by that many people, but I do think that is a helpful perspective sometimes to take. Not that we're insignificant, but just that we're part of this large universe and there's a lot of uncertainty in it. And that's that's the reality. And so that's one angle. So I think it's all in your perspective of it. I'm glad you brought that up because that segued right into the next one I was going to bring up. The asteroid of doom coming from space that always promises to hit us and always misses us and leaves us disappointed is the sweet meteor of death, <laughs> meme, and in reality. Sorry, Dr. Michael Siegel, our astronomer friend. Is that healthy for our mental health? I think it can be healthy when it's the basis of shared humor and commiserating and connection. I think it can be unhealthy when you're already trying to deal with all of these anxieties we have no control over. And then here's one more thing, you know, so a, a lot of it is how you cope with these things. A couple more. We're done with Cosmos list because thank God I don't ever talk about Cosmos on my <laughs> platform ever again. The Barbie movie. I found the discourse over Barbie and Oppenheimer and Barbieheimer, I found this fascinating. Um, I saw both in the theaters, and I'm not a big theater going, but I went to both. 
went to Barbie with my kid, obviously. I had one of my kids with me for Oppenheimer as well. It was funny. My daughter went to Barbie without me, and she said you could actually hear Oppenheimer coming through the wall because it was oh so loud. <laughs> I found that whole thing fascinating, how people put them together because they were kind of polar opposites. You have nuclear warfare and this very idealized, and then the pop culture of Greta Gerwig kind of making fun of misogyny and things like that to prove a point. I found that whole thing completely fascinating. I'm sure you did too, but I actually found it to be positive because I thought people put some thought into both things, found a healthy, happy way to deal with it, still took it as entertainment. But yeah, you could talk about misogyny and you could talk about you know nuclear weapons and the responsibility of that. And people laugh about it, but that's actually a healthy thing if you keep it on that level to get into some really complex, tough topics. I agree with you. I saw both movies in the theater too. And I think that uh, something that we share and part of the reason that we uh, connected and found each other on Twitter is because there is a productivity for conversations that can come from discussing real life themes in kind of fictional representations. Now, of course, Oppenheimer is, is based on a true story, but the fact that it's a movie, I think allows for some discussion that would, it's much harder when it's something right now that's happening in the world. I think that people have a harder time stepping back and learning from each other. So I do think that was really useful. And with Barbie, I'm a big fan of kind of satire and humor for certain points being made and points of discussion. And I thought it delivered that well. Plus it was obviously just something that a lot of people could have opinions on. And so a widespread discussion and people who didn't like it or people who liked it and could talk about it. And that was another shared source of commonality that I think was a little more lighthearted, at least in some ways. Obviously, misogyny is not lighthearted, but in some of the ways that it was framed and depicted in the movie. I also liked how very few people got the end joke about misogyny being about horses, which in the traditional Barbie mindset, horses is very much a girl thing. And yes. nobody got that end joke. And I, I was like, y'all aren't getting this joke. I've got a kid that rides horses. I'm like, y'all are missing the end joke on the whole horses and Mojo Dojo Casa house. I was just blown away by that. I okay. didn't get that either. So thank you for sharing it with me. I appreciate it on a new level. <laughs> there, there were so many end jokes in that. Okay. Here's the big one. Okay. Is Taylor Swift good for our collective mental health? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> so I'm not personally a Remember, Swift your career is on the line if you answer this wrongly. Because I know. <laughs> I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a high enough threshold to be a Swifty. However, I'm not opposed to Swifties. I'm glad that people like Taylor Swift. And I did take um, my kid to, I did take to go see the Taylor Swift eras movie. So I can, and this is my thought. I, again, I think anything that brings people together is really important. One of the things that I found personally a little bit amusing is that when I was in high school and still I'm really into punk rock and there's a lot of discussion about like posers and people selling out. And what I found interesting is that I hear that around Taylor Swift that people will say, well, I've always liked her. And, you know, they're not a true fan. They only like the popular stuff. But she's so hugely popular that I was surprised to hear there was still this kind of debate about who the biggest fans were. So, in other words, I think some things can, negative things can come from it. But I do love the idea of people enjoying themselves and, and being entertained and, you know, connecting on those. And even when even aside from the concerts, which of course were very hard for anyone to get tickets to, I love the fact that the movies a lot more people could go see and that people were acting like they were at a real concert, like dressing up and, and all that stuff. So I think there are some very sweet parts of it, even if it's not my particular um, favorite type of music. Yeah, I went and saw it in the theater with my kid. Mm -hmm. I wore the friendship bracelet they were handing out. Yes. I did get a blank one. It didn't have any name, didn't have the names on it. And the kids sang every single song yep. that she sung because I hear them all. 
And of course, she didn't play the one Taylor Swift song I actually liked, so I had to listen to that on the way home, which was really funny. Oh, which one um, is that? I'm not telling you. Okay. Wildest. No, we already talked about it on the show. I like Wildest okay. Dreams. That's a good oh, song. Okay. I, there's a couple of Taylor Swift songs I like. Look, the reason I bring it up, though, is people are acting like this Taylor Swift thing's a new thing. And yes, it's the biggest one of the moment. She said, this is this generation's Elvis. This is just generation's The Beatles. Pick whatever you want from the 80s or 90s when we were growing up, whatever the hot thing was. This is not, though, the size and the scope of it because of the technology and her talent and her skill level. This is not a new thing in human history, especially American pop culture history. This is just the latest thing. I think that's an important perspective to keep with the Taylor Swift thing is, yes, this happens about once a generation. You have something like this happen. And no society is not going to crumble because of it. Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, I read a very nice article comparing, looking at Madonna and Taylor Swift. And I think it is important, like you said, to just look at how each is, they're artists and they're also adapting to the times that they're in. And it's similarly huge phenomenon, people dressing up like them, changing looks, changing music and all of that stuff. And so you're right. I think having that larger cultural perspective is important and interesting. All right. Friends hold friends accountable, Dr. Katie Gordon. So I'm going to let you hold me accountable. I think I was doing God's work and being righteous and helping people. I want to help people online and all I did, little innocent me on Twitter, just minding my own business, pointed out that because the new kids on the block are on tour, that they are the same age as the three main characters on the first season of Golden Girls. And you would have thought that I had committed some great heresy against God, man, apple pie, and puppies. I thought I was helping. Was I helping mental health or hurting mental health by just stating the obvious? That they're all in their early 50s, and Blanche on Golden Girls in the first season was only 47. Your thoughts? Um, so I, I, at two levels, on a personal level, loving the Golden Girls and approaching Columbus, which are their age, realizing, oh, they're not as old as I always thought in my head. Like, in my head, growing up, I could have thought they were in their 80s or something. Obviously, they're not. That's not, it might not be a good feeling realizing that, but I think that, again, is like, not a new thing, right? It's universal that when you hit a certain age, well, maybe not universal, but it's very common for us all to just view ourselves as like 20s, 30s forever. Like I, uh, Nate Bargatsky was talking about this in his stand-up, and I think part of the reason he's such a huge, famous, popular stand-up comedian is because he identifies things like that. And he's like, I kind of He's like, there's just, you hit this point sometimes where you step back and you realize, oh, wait, I am the older person. Oh, wait, the new kids are as old as the Golden Girls. So overall, I think it's good. Sometimes personal growth involves some unpleasant feelings at first. <laughs> pain. You can say pain. It's hurt. It hurts. <laughs> yes. It, it hurts. Hurt. It's true. It's it true. It uh, Dr. Katie Gordon, I love doing these episodes with you. We will continue to do them periodically because I just don't think, especially people that have platforms like we have with this, we need to just stop and talk about this stuff because we can talk about consuming the news and what's going on in the news. We don't talk about how we deal with how we respond to the news. We don't want to be overly reactive to things. I think this is really important. We're going to link to the Suicide Prevention Workbook. It's a great resource for you to get get a copy and just leave a land somewhere. That's exactly what it's designed to be for. Talk to people about it. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, what you got going on until we get you back on again. And we're going to keep you on the heavy rotation so we can keep talking about these important issues. Thank you. I, I so, so appreciate it. And you're absolutely right. There are a lot of difficult events in the world. You talk about a lot of them and I appreciate that you prioritize well-being, mental health and how we cope with them. I am still on Twitter at Dr. Gath Catherine Gordon, um, D-R-K-A-T-H-R-Y-N-H-G-R-D-O-N. And I am at the same handle on Blue Sky and on Instagram. I have not been posting as much as I had in the past, but I, I will probably pick that up again, especially since I'm working on a new book. It will be a guided journal for people who are struggling with suicidal thoughts and so when i when i'm in the process of creating new books it's helpful for me to connect and ask people for feedback and so i'll put an effort to to post some more 
It sounds good, Dr. Catherine Gordon. We call her Katie because Catherine sounds way too formal. <laughs> Look, we this is what we do, though, because this is actually what we just did today is a good example. We got into it. We hit the important stuff. We got in the dark stuff, but then we balanced it out with some fun, too. That's how you handle these things. You've taught us that. We will continue to have you back. We'll keep doing it. Dr. Katie Gordon, thank you so much for the time, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. that'll do it for this edition of Heard Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do, herdtell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive, so we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that, and also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click herdtell.substack.com we sure appreciate it and follow us on social media herdtell show on the twitter for for the fires my personal twitter handle no we're not going to call it x but if you could share us and let folks know that our programs we're checking out we sure would appreciate it so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed we'll talk to you real soon for the next herdtell All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church in Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.